we're going to have a, a good time, an encouraging time, possibly a challenging time in God's Word, uh, but I feel like uh, we're going to come out of here uh, better and stronger for it. So if you've got a Bible again, John 11, I want to begin by reading um, from John 11 verses 1 through 5 to set the stage and the tone for us tonight. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love, or your friend, your really good friend, is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And John wants us to know this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And let me add, but if you read this story, you might question how much he loved them or if he loved them at all. Now tonight, in our next episode of our undeniable study, we've opened up to John 11, and of all, all of John's stories and all of John's accounts, um, the historical accounts of Jesus' life on earth, all of them are unforgettable. Um, but this one is very special, but it's very challenging as well. Uh, this one really serves to drive, ho drive home John's thesis. The reason why John has been writing, if you'll remember, we kind of peeked and read the end of the story before we started way back uh, uh, six, seven months ago. John tells us at the end of the gospel that the reason why he's written this story, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is not hiding his, his intention. He's not trying to just tell a story without a, an agenda or without a, 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 you know, a bias. He's telling us, hey, I've written all this stuff, not because it's, you know, I'm not making it up, it's true, but I've not told the whole story. I've just told certain parts of the story. I've just told the essential parts of the story. I've told the high watermark parts of the story so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior that we've been waiting for. And not only that you would believe, but that you might transform, have a transformation and step into true everlasting life. Now, all the stories that we've read so far... I can see from the surface what John was getting at. Because we've read amazing stories. We've read Jesus, um, the party at, at Cana at Galilee was dying down. Jesus showed up and gave him a little bit more reason to, to, to celebrate. Right? Jesus showed up to the woman at the well, and she was about to give up. And he said, you don't need to give up. I've, get, I've come to give you drink that well can give you. He showed up to a man named Nicodemus who was bummed out, who thought he knew everything, but he was at the end of his rope and at the end of his book, right? And he wanted to know more answers. And Jesus said, hey, I've got some stuff that you need to know. He showed up to a man who, whose son was sick unto death, and he told the man, listen, you you just need to believe you're, you're gonna, your son's going to live. At the very moment that that man encountered Jesus, Jesus told him the son was going to be healed. The man's son rose up to life. We've read some incredible stories of Jesus and that woman caught in adultery, and when everyone was ready to stone her, Jesus stopped them, and he saved her. We read the story of the blind man that people thought God was judging, and Jesus said, no, no, God loved this man, and God gave him his sight back. 
So we've read some pretty incredible stories, and I can see what John was getting at. These stories were written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the power from heaven that can change our lives. But John 11 is not a story that you read and you read and you read and you think, you know what, yeah, I can see it. I see, I see. Now, for the end of the story, maybe, but the build-up to it and the background for it just doesn't seem like it's that convincing. Now, of course, we know the end of the story and we know why it has that, uh, that powerful uh, uh, message behind it, but just from how it's set up, it makes you wonder. Now, I want to bring something up before we dive in too deep. We often talk a lot about how God can turn things around for good, right? We sing about it. We love to talk about it, right? We shout about it. I mean, we talk about how God can take bad things and do good things, right? And that's awesome, right? We should praise God for it. He can take bad things that He didn't send, and He can send something good through it, right? He can bring you to it. He can bring you through it. And we love giving God glory for that. We talk about how the enemy might have meant it for evil, but God can absolutely intervene it, right? The enemy may have meant it for evil, but God can use it for good. God may have not intended it, but God can absolutely intervene within it. Now, those make you feel good, um, and they're true. They're absolutely true. But that's not the scene in tonight's story. These kind of well, you know, uh, kind of a nice spin, a nice bow that you can tie on a story. Somebody caused some trouble, but God showed up and saved the day. Somebody meant something for evil, but God showed up and used it for good. That's not how this story goes tonight. Tonight's story isn't one where God steps into something that he didn't cause and then redeems it or does a miracle. Tonight's story is like none other. Tonight's story is one in which God actually sets up a tragedy in order to create a legend. Do you hear that? God sets up, as in doesn't just allow it to happen, but causes it to happen. And that might challenge your faith a little bit, and that's okay to be challenged. That might make you feel a little uncomfortable, and that's okay but God actually sets up a tragedy in order to create a legend and to set forth a brand new precedent. Our story tonight at first might seem contradictory to what we believe about God or what we might want to believe about God. It has to do with the things that we can't know and can't control. Now, I, I know there's things that you don't know and things that you don't yet control, but the reality is there are things in this life that you're never going to know, right? You're never going to know why, but you might not ever know anything about it, but it's still affecting you. There are things that you're not ever going to be able to control, as, as try as we might, to control every little aspect of our lives. There are things in this life that you're not going to know, the things that you can't control. There are unknowns and there are uncontrollable things and factors in your life. There are more of these than we'd like, right? Christian scholars and preachers and really believers in general have long tried to reconcile these sorts of realities with a good God. We try to rationalize, we try to apologize for, we try to alter and erase them from being so, but tonight's story actually brings for us and, and really puts a question in front of us that I want us to consider. What if the unknowns and uncontrollable are actually good for us? Now, you don't have to think, you don't have to ever agree that they are. I just want you to consider for just a little bit, for 30 minutes or so, what if the things that you don't know and the things that you're never going to control, what if they might be good for you? You say, that's never going to happen, but what if they are? What if the solution isn't to erase them from reality, but to learn how to leverage them? Some way, somehow. 
Now, here's why I think we need to wrestle with these questions. Not because I want to, but because I think we got to. The unknowns and uncontrollable things in this life, they worry us, don't they? They bring us grief and uncertainty. And we don't like grief. Who likes grief? Nobody. Who likes uncertainty? Nobody. We don't like to worry, do we? And nobody should ever walk out of church saying, man, I cannot wait for some grief. If you do, then wow, that, man must, that guy must have been persuasive. I'm not that persuasive. I don't want to be that persuasive. But nobody's ever going to walk out and say, you know what, I cannot wait to have something to worry about. It's not going to happen. Nobody's going to walk out thinking, man, I cannot wait to have some grief. That's just not normal, right? It's okay. Now, this might really resonate with us, but in the ancient world, this, the sort of grieves and worries and uncertainties were on another level. See, we worry about what we like to call first world problems, and I'm not saying they're not legitimate. They're legitimate. They bring us to our knees, don't they? We worry about things, and everything's relative, right? You worry about things that, 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 that are relative to you, right? So it doesn't matter that the ancient world had bigger problems. I know that, but I want to make you consider it. The ancient world, there were a lot of reasons to worry, things to worry that we'll never have to worry about. And again, again, I know it's still relative, but you only knew you had control of what was right in front of you in the ancient world. Really not until a few hundred years ago, but in the ancient world especially. They lived in a hand-to-mouth world, no guarantee of anything. You had what you had in front of you, and it might even go away. Jesus spoke to this anxiety, this anxiety on one famous occasion, and he really stirred up his audience's emotions. You've heard this passage before. Therefore, do not be anxious. And the reason why he said do not be anxious, guess what? They were all anxious, right? Do not worry. They were all worrying. And what were they worrying about? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Now, those are big problems to worry about, right? I mean, hey, we, we read that and think, well, you know, is he just being general? Is he just trying to be abstract? No, they were literally worrying about, hey, what am I going to eat tomorrow? Harvest didn't come through this year. The, you know, storm wiped out my, my garden. I don't have anything to eat tomorrow. I had, my water's poisoned. My water's dirty. My water's dry. No well, right? I mean, they literally I don't have food, don't have water, I don't have clothes. The moth, you know, moss decayed and somebody broke in and installed. Those were real things, right? They couldn't just go and buy, you know, a, hand, a buggy full of stuff for $10, right, that would get them through the day. They were living on, the, uh, you know, prayer, literally. Now, there are people in the world today that still live like this, right? We are fortunate, and many of us even have been in some unfortunate seasons of life, but probably never like these folks were. So Jesus says, hey, you shouldn't worry about this stuff. And they're like, come on, Jesus. Like, I mean, are you really going to tell me not to be anxious for things that i got to have? And he says, but and then he kind of insults them. He says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. The people y'all judge and think you're better than. The pagans worry about those things, and you're better than the pagans, aren't you? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Well, I don't care that he knows. I'm waiting for him to show, right? They didn't say that, but they were thinking it. And Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And they're thinking, Are you serious? I mean, so if we just seek you or seek whatever you're saying is of God, then God's going to give us everything? He doesn't promise that. He just says the things that God says that you need. No, he's just, and he's abstract about it. He doesn't say what the kingdom of God really is. He just says, Seek the kingdom of God first. And he'll give you what you need. And then he kind of doesn't make you feel any better with this next statement. He says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I mean, that doesn't make me feel any better. I mean, hey, don't worry about today, but really don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow might be even worse. 
And you're sitting there thinking, I thought Jesus made you feel better, right? I mean, at the end of this, he sent them in further disarray. He brought up the fact that every day they go through this cycle. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to drink? Again, all these things we never even worry about, but we can take those questions and raise our own fears and worries, right? You can replace eat, drink, and wear with whatever you worry about. It's legitimate, right? You could just, I'm not saying erase it, but you can write in below it. What do you worry about the most, right? If it's not food, drink, and clothes, write it in there because that's relative to you. But Jesus cracks open a can of fear that they weren't even considering. He says, hey, even if you get today under control, just wait until tomorrow. It might be even worse. But no need to worry, right? People kept showing up for his sermons. I don't know why, right? If I did this, people would tell who? Why would, we, why would we do that? Now, Jesus knew how to really get people's attention, right? Real comforting, maybe you would think. But Jesus isn't joking here. He says, don't worry, we shouldn't wring our hands over tomorrow because ultimately tomorrow is not in our hands. But if, if tomorrow is up in the air, are we just left hoping that God intervenes? Or is it in God's hands? And does that mean that even if tomorrow brings something bad, that it was from God too? Because I, I would rather live in a world where God holds it all in His hand than just, a, than just a world where God shows up and picks up stuff that broke. And that means God might have brought the bad, but I'd rather God bring it because I know God knows what's going, what to do with it. Now, we're tempted to focus on the bad, but what if we focus on the God? Before we get too far ahead... We don't know what tomorrow holds. And sometimes it causes us to worry, doesn't it? And come on, we don't worry about tomorrow because we're worried things might be too good. I mean, when's the last time you went to bed worrying about things being too good tomorrow? I might make too much money tomorrow. I might wake up and be too famous or too rich, right? We don't stress over how we might handle blessings. We, worry, we never worry about tomorrow bringing good. We worry about tomorrow bringing bad. And we assume tomorrow's uncertainty equals a big risk. Why is that? Why does the uncertainty of tomorrow worry us? And I know why. You know why. You don't need me to ask that question and answer it. Because there's always a chance that things might go wrong tomorrow, isn't there? That's just how the world works, isn't it? That's something that we've accepted. And some of us, we can think of a thousand possible ways that everything might unravel in front of us. And while some people with nice smiles and nice hair might convince you that things are never going to go wrong for you, or if you're living right, or if you believe the right things, I can't lie to you like that. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring us the absolute worst poverty, pain, and problems. Tomorrow may not even come for some of us, or someone close to you. And I'm steering us into this place tonight because I want to know, you want to know, what does Jesus promise us about tomorrow? Can we trust God even if tomorrow tests us? Can we trust God even if tomorrow troubles us? Now, I've got to be honest with you. We need to be honest with each other, with ourselves. This is where Christianity falls apart for some people. This is where faith becomes obsolete for some people. Maybe it's been this way for you. We want to believe in God, but we push back and we often wonder, isn't there some verse I can quote, some prayer I can pray that makes me safeguarded from any kind of trouble? Isn't there some level I can ascend to that excuses me from any trouble at all? And I hear you. Christianity falls apart for so many right here and for some of us because of the fact that tomorrow might bring sorrow. It leaves a bad taste in our mouth about God, doesn't it? In the age our argument begins from there, 
why does or how does a good God allow bad things to happen to us or even threaten or loom over us? This question marks the end of faith for many people and you can't reconcile the two. And maybe the more tomorrows that come that bring sorrow, the more you wrestle with this question. But let me ask you this especially to the one who struggles with that question. And to be honest, if you've ever wondered, how can a good God allow bad, allow bad things to people? How can God let this possibility of things going bad tomorrow loom over me? How can that be good? How can that be just? How can that be fair? Got to ask you a question. Kind of to the side, but not too far. Have you ever been the sorrow for someone's tomorrow? Have you? I mean, completely removed from that conversation. Have you ever been somebody's sorrow? Of course you have, right? Remember when you were a student, right? Right, and you had that teacher, right? And you, they didn't like you and you didn't like them, but you made their day a lot more problematic than they made yours. And you thought they were just the devil, right? <laughs> but maybe it was the other way around. But come on, getting out of the schoolroom. As someone maybe had a fine and dandy day, and all of a sudden you showed up, and you've had a bad day, unexpectedly for them, maybe unintentionally from us, have you ever caused somebody's day to go from good to bad? And you didn't really mean to. You were just kind of a loose cannon that day, weren't you? You had a bad day, and it was just a lot of problems, and you had a lot of reasons why it was going to go that way, and it wasn't their fault they were in your way, but they were just in your way, and it was like you were a bulldozer, right? And you had no slow, you had no, 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 no part, right? You were just going and going and going, and you just kind of caused some problems, and you were hoping to get to the end of the day to start over the next day, right? But, you know, along the way, you knocked some people down. We've all done some bad stuff, haven't we? Affected other people, whether we wanted to or not, it's our nature, and we often struggle with the bad out there, but there's some bad in here, isn't there? Where does that fit in? And could it be the bad in here makes us so aware of the bad out there? I mean, when we're wrestling with the question, how can a good God allow bad things to happen? We don't ever wrestle with the question, how can a good God allow me to do bad things? Because when we do bad things, we're hoping the good God lets us by, don't we? Come on. When bad things happen to us, we wonder how did God let it happen. But when we're the bad things that happen to somebody else, we're just hoping God didn't see us, right? When we're the bad thing that causes problems for somebody, or maybe we sinned and nobody knew about it, but then they found out, right? And then it caused a bunch of dominoes to fall down. See, when it happened to us, we were praying for God to judge them. But when we were the thing that happened to them, we were praying for God to forgive us. See, we want, to, we want God to stop the bad out there, but we don't want God to stop the bad in here because if He stopped the bad in here, He would stop us, wouldn't He? But I think, if you think about that for a minute, John's Gospel really speaks to this. Because John's Gospel has been all about God showing up to be one of us in spite of us. You hear that? God showed up to be one of us in spite of us. Because His one of us wasn't like all of us. You could say John's Gospel has been about Jesus coming to show that God is for us, not by eliminating evil, but by coexisting with evil. As in coexisting with us. I didn't call you evil. But you get the point. 
See, this is a really big deal. Jesus proved that God is for us, not by eliminating evil, but by coexisting with it. You heard me right. God, Jesus made God known, not by getting rid of the bad, but by coming alongside the bad, including, and namely, us. And maybe you wonder, you ask, why would he want to, why would he wait to eliminate evil? Because Jesus wanted to spare us from the judgment. He wanted to separate us from the evil before he judged the evil. He wanted to save us from the sin. And if he were to do away with evil, if tomorrow was guaranteed to never bring sorrow, then there'd have to be a guarantee that we wouldn't be there because we might cause, potentially, we might cause some bad, might we? And rather than eliminating all the bad and all the broken, including us, he chooses to wait. He desires to save, but in the meantime, he does, this doesn't mean that Jesus is powerless in the face of evil or whatever tomorrow might bring, whether it be poverty or death. Remember, Jesus lived alongside of evil. He demonstrated that there was hope in the face of whatever tomorrow brings. And Jesus showed so often, and on this particular occasion, He modeled this truth and this hope for us in the most powerful, eye-opening way. The reason I wanted to spend some time up front talking about this and setting this up is because in John 11, Jesus manufactured, you heard me right, he manufactures a scenario. He manipulates somebody's life to give us hope for tomorrow. He uses somebody that he loved to show us all that he loves us. He manipulated somebody's life so that he could make it known to us that he cares about us. Jesus may not clear tomorrow's horizon. He may not take away tomorrow's uncertainty. But our hope is that Jesus will be there with us. And that might not be the answer that you want, but I believe by the end of our time, you'll realize the, it's the answer that we need. I want to spend the remainder of time going through this story as quickly as we can, but maybe we've never saw ourselves in the story, and in turn, we've, we've never found this, in, this Jesus who shows up in this chapter in our own stories. But the story begins, like we read, that Jesus, who is outside of town a few days' journey, Jesus, the story begins that his friend Lazarus was dying. His friend Lazarus was very, very sick. An uncertain tomorrow looms over Lazarus, and Jesus is at least a day away. We find out later that Lazarus dies the next day. Tomorrow brought death to Lazarus. Meanwhile, Jesus does not move. He does not budge. In fact, he goes farther away. But Jesus said when he heard about Lazarus being sick in verse 4 that he said, this sickness is not unto death, but it's actually for the glory of God. This was a brand new parallel. A brand new parallel, brand new paradigm that he showed them. That sickness plus God can equal some kind of good, can equal some kind of glory for God. The sickness, I think, speaks to the nature the whole world is in. The evil that it causes out of, our, out of control, out of our control, not necessarily of our own doing. Jesus identifies the threat that is all around us, that is closing in on someone he loves. Here's what Jesus says. The tomorrow that loomed over Lazarus, though it by nature threatened him, had a divine purpose, was for God's glory. Not that God could use it, but God was in control of it. I don't expect that to make you feel completely better. But that's the truth about this story. Jesus wasn't just going to walk into this story. He was actually pulling the strings behind the story. And here's what I want to say about that. God's sovereignty isn't most defined or flexed when he stops evil. 
See, we think that God's strong, God's strength, is most defined or most flexed when he puts a stop to evil. But I don't think that's the case. I think God's sovereignty is actually most defined when he steers us through it. That's what this story, I think, tells us. Whatever may be looming over you, as categorically evil as it might be, Jesus says it's not going to be your doom, it's not going to be your end that we should not assume whatever looms over us spells your doom, Jesus has stated that it can be and it is for God's glory. Now, it's easy to assume that the bad that looms over us is for our doom because dark clouds don't usually make us think of sunshine. For anyone's perspective, it would appear that nothing good is headed our way when it's dark outside. Sickness cannot be for God's glory. That seems impossible. That seems unheard of. And John knows that as we read this, we might be thinking, you know, is Jesus just trying to brush this off as as, uh, not a big deal? Does he just not care about Lazarus? I mean, does he just really kind of want this to just go away? Are they bothering him? But John makes it clear to us, Jesus loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loved Lazarus. And I think he writes that because our assumption is he must not really care about them because he's not moving rather quickly. Knowing that he's a day away from Lazarus, he chooses to stall for two days. So that means whatever tomorrow brings for Lazarus is going to have at least two days to reign over him as Jesus remains absent. Do you hear that? That tomorrow was going to bring Lazarus' death and Jesus was going to be gone from the scene for at least two more days. So death was going to dominate Lazarus. And death has never been defeated before. Bethany and its townspeople weren't the only ones worried about what tomorrow might hold. The story tells us that when Jesus says, hey, we better start heading back to Judea, his disciples say, last time we were there, they threw rocks at us, so we don't want to go back to to Judea. And then Jesus tells them, hey, I'm the light of the world, y'all. I'm headed there because this is all for God's glory, all for God's purpose, so y'all better follow me. He says in verse number 9, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Here's what I think Jesus is trying to tell us. While I am with you, the paths I'm forging, these are opportunities to be illuminated forever. No matter how dark the forecast might be for tomorrow, Jesus made a promise to his followers. And John teased it out in the prologue. He says that in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light can shine into darkness, and darkness can't stop it. And while the light was in the world, he heeded his followers to pay attention. He made a promise to his followers. And I think this is a template that we can copy and paste and use in our own lives. It would change the way they would see the darkness, and it can change the way we see darkness. To know Jesus is to have the light of the world. Darkness may surround you, but it cannot fill you, and it doesn't have to overwhelm you. It doesn't mean darkness is going to go away. It doesn't mean that we won't come up against death or its shadows won't appear and suffocate us at times. It just means there's light that's going to shine through the darkness towards hope, and the fact that Christ has risen from the dead reminds us that no matter how dark it might get, it's not the end. Now Jesus shifts things back to Lazarus in verse 11. He says, these things he said. And after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I might wake him up. To which they say, well if he's just sleeping, we ought to not go because they might throw rocks at us. They're all worried about themselves, right? Verse 
13. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking of his rest. And bluntly in verse 14, he says, Lazarus is dead. You mean we've been waiting here all this time and you let him die? Suddenly it doesn't, it's not cute anymore. There's not parables and allegories. It's literally that they let this guy die because they stayed at camp too long. And listen to Jesus. This is very difficult to read. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. You've heard that before, haven't you? John told us, I'm writing this that you may believe. I'm glad this tragedy happened. I let this tragedy happen. I caused this tragedy to happen to somebody I love. Somebody you love. If he calls this to happen to somebody they love, what happens if he causes it to happen to them? That's why it's important to you and me, isn't it? That's why we better pay attention. I'm glad I wasn't there to prevent this evil. Again, read this and think about, think about this in light of what we've been through. I'm glad I wasn't there for your sakes when you sat in the doctor's office waiting for lab results that you knew weren't going to be good. I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake when you sat in the ICU, when you sat in the hospital beside somebody that was suffering. I know this is tough. I'm glad I wasn't there for the sake of everybody who's ever pulled up to a horrific accident not knowing what was going to be on the scene. I'm glad I wasn't there for the sake of anybody who's ever hopelessly walked on campus under lockdown. I'm glad I wasn't there for anybody who's ever stood by a grave. Do you hear that? How can he be saying that? I'm glad I wasn't there. I let Lazarus suffer. I let his family be broken. Jesus creates a brand new category, shedding brand new light into this theodicy of good versus evil. Jesus rejoiced that darkness had overshadowed Bethany for the sake of the whole world. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable, that's okay. That means you're a person. Imagine how they felt. Thomas heard this and he said they were, what they were all thinking, let us go that we might die with them. Jesus, if you're really right steering this ship and you're running that kind of operation, then we're all doomed. See how quickly they went from, we love you, to, can we get out of this, please? Meanwhile, they arrive at Bethany four days after Lazarus has died, and it's in these moments where, they, where those who hurt don't hold back. And maybe you've been there before. And this lets you know that you can always be honest with God. Especially when you're face-to-face with someone who could have been there but wasn't. Especially when that somebody is Jesus. Look at verse 20. Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, not to hug him, And Mary was sitting in the house because she didn't even want to see him. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You could have prevented this. Not knowing that Jesus just said he caused it. Tomorrow loomed and loomed. Darkness got heavier and thicker. 
and we thought for sure that Jesus would show up in the nick of time and send all of the evil away. He healed strangers. He spoke from miles away and healed people. Any minute he would heal Lazarus. Of course he will. They had faith. It wasn't a faith problem. They had faith. They were depending on Jesus, and Jesus let them down. The miracle didn't happen. Jesus could have prevented this, but he didn't. Jesus, you could have kept this from happening, but it seems as if you wanted this to happen. That's exactly right. Martha had faith. It didn't prevent her from having pain, though. Verse 22, she believed. It says, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She's holding out hope even though he's dead. So many of us bail in this crucial moment, but this is where God actually brings us the most help. Look, verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she said, I know, I know in the resurrection, I know, I know he's going to live again, but that does not what, that's not what I want to hear right now. I don't need a sermon, right? I don't need somebody telling me, oh, he's in heaven and he's just having the best time. I'm hurting because you took him from me. He says in verse 25, no, 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 I'm not talking about the last days. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, hey, I'm here right now to show you that even in this pain, even in this darkness, even in this valley, I can give you hope. I can give you help. Even when you think there isn't hope to be found, I've showed up to show you that it, that's not true. Jesus, the proof of who Jesus really is, is revealed and when he shows up. And sometimes that isn't limited to preventive care. Honestly, that doesn't define Jesus. It's in the chaos. It's in the conflict. It's in the confusion. While it's tempting and easy to deflect and say, a good God wouldn't let me get here. We've already established that that's the enemy's way of isolating you in the hurt and pain. Jesus shows up in the middle of the pain to show that he's that kind of God. One who coexists alongside the worst, even when, even if it's us. Jesus grabs Martha by the hand and he says, I'm doing this so generations can know. I am the resurrection. I am your hope. When everything is broken, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, though they may suffer, though it may be difficult, if you trust in me that there's a reason, there's a purpose, there's a meaning, if you hold on to the God who's trying to redeem everything, you will live. You will thrive through it. Verse 26, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die, never be beaten. He says, do you believe this? And she said, Lord, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. It's in that moment that Martha sees who he really is, the Messiah who has waded into the mess. Jesus goes on to have a similar exchange with Mary, and then he finally arrives at the tomb. In verse 33 and 34, Jesus shows up and he saw her weeping, the Jews who came with her weeping. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He approaches the scene and he's not separated from the pain. He says, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Even Jesus was moved by this. It's as if all of eternity 
had been funneled down to this one moment, Jesus nears this gaping wound in creation, this milestorm of sin, as He gets near this perfect, eternal being, as He approaches death, a grave symbolizing everybody's grave, everybody's pain, everybody's suffering. As He draws near, He begins to be deeply moved and deeply troubled. Here's what makes Jesus so unique and so worth your attention. He enters into the emotions of the moment, into the scene of all the scenes like this that have ever happened and will ever happen, the ones that you faced yourself. He entered into the pain. He stands in solidarity with all who are suffering, all who are broken, all who are weeping. And it's in this moment He allows Himself to experience what we all experience on a daily basis. What you fear tomorrow might bring you. He allows that darkness to loom over Him. He stepped into that darkness. He inched closer to the edge of creation where everybody was falling into the abyss, falling into the grave, falling into hell. He stands there and He lets that aroma soak over Him. He lets that pain and that sorrow and that agony enter into His heart. So if you ever wonder why'd you let it happen, just know that Jesus walked into that place with you and He stands there with you. And He says in verse 35, or the Scripture says the only way John could describe it, Jesus wept. He stepped to the edge of creation, the perfect world that He made to be sinless and perfect and wholesome and, 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 and healthy and happy. He steps to the edge of the creation that fell apart and He stands alongside every one of us and He breaks down weeping in agony because He didn't mean it to be this way. But we made it that way. But He didn't leave us alone. He allowed all the pain, all the sorrow of all time to pile up. And from the onlooker's perspective, they thought He's met His match. They thought, see how He loved him. Could this man that opened the eyes of the blind also not have kept this man from dying? They thought Jesus has met His limitation. I mean, if he could have saved Lazarus, he clearly would have, right? But what if, what if Jesus bundled all of time in one afternoon? All the brokenness, all the pain, all that God observes, all that we experience. What if all that was wrapped into one moment? What if that was all in this moment as he stands before this grave, weeping and broken by, and weeping and broken for the world that he loves? What if that's what's going on here? And that's why verse 38 says, Jesus groaning in Himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And He said, take away the stone. Oh, that's not a good idea, Jesus. It smells pretty bad in there. Take away the stone. Lord, by this time there was a great stench. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you if you believe you would see the glory of God? He says, it's not over. We don't believe that there is hope at this point. And then Jesus talks to the Father. He says, they took the stone away from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. God, I know that you know what's going on. I know what's going on. But all this is to display to everybody in all the generations that we might can reframe good and evil so that no matter how dark it might get, people will know there is light on the way. Verse 43, when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
And he who had died, John wants us to know, this was a dead man. He who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, because what happens with dead people, they're wrapped in grave clothes. He came out, his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, loose him, let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen these things Jesus did, believed in him. That's why it happened. So that they, so that we might believe. God had come to dwell alongside evil. To ultimately eradicate it once and for all, but to first release all those tied up in its chains. Do you see this? This is a teaser trailer of what was going to happen a few chapters later. When Lazarus was kept, what kept Lazarus in the grave, what sends us to the grave, what the sin in all of us, all around us, all of that was taken off of us and transferred to Jesus so that Jesus' life could be transferred to us. He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, we can be healed. You see, the moral of the story, God didn't eliminate evil. He placed it on Jesus. God didn't eliminate me and you. He took our evil and placed it on Jesus. Because He so loved us, we can be saved. Jesus didn't stop at weeping at this wound, this hole in creation. God placed a cross over that hole. Jesus hung on that cross, not to just identify with us, but to welcome all our pain, all our sorrow, all our sin that could ever cause us any grief. He welcomed it on Himself. He didn't just weep at the grave. He took Lazarus' place in the grave. You get that? He took our place, yet death could not hold him. He was not undone by death. The sting, the pains, the chains of death were eliminated. His resurrection is our proof. It's our victory. One last time, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He asked you and he asked me, Do you believe that? Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have no evil to fear, for our God is with us. The true marvel of our God isn't his swiftness or ability to banish evil but his patience and willingness to dwell alongside of it in order to redeem it. How pure his love must have been to give all for all, only for some to receive. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring pain or even death, but Jesus' resurrection promises me that I will not face or bear that pain alone. And even if I die, Jesus will be with me. I hope you believe that tonight, church. It could change everything if we wrapped our hearts around this one truth. Jesus stared death eye to eye. He did not blink. Jesus comes near. He approaches us when we're unraveling to show us and remind us today's evil, our evil, doesn't keep Him away.
one last time. Jesus can and will and does coexist with evil in order to be with us. And that's the best news I can share with you tonight. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for your goodness. Lord, your goodness isn't just seen in the, your ability to wipe away evil. Your goodness is seen in your ability and your willingness to stand beside it. Lord, you could wipe away all that is evil within me, which would take me away. But you love me too much to do that. You love everybody in this house too much to do that. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that you have come and stood alongside us in our grief, in our pain, in our sin to remind us that we're not alone. We never will be. That there is victory. There is hope. There is resurrection. And there is life. Through Jesus and Jesus alone. We ask all of this in your Savior's name. Amen.